Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Yosef Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just want to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. Consultant James Smith from Global Sport Concepts is back on with me for his monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. In this episode, James and I discuss long-term athlete development. As always, this was another excellent episode with James, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, James, we are recording. Thanks so much again for making time to speak to me this month. Um, first off, before we get into our topic today, which is long-term leg development, which is is one that uh, I've asked you to speak on, and uh, you were gracious enough to say it. I'll, I'll definitely touch on that. Um, just before we get into that, though, how have you been? Doing well. Love it. Just straight to the point. That's consulting, it. Consulting opportunities grow and grow, and all steam ahead. Great stuff, great stuff. Uh, and just so you know, um, as always, feedback I've been getting about our episodes. Kieran O'Reilly gave a big shout out there on Twitter. He was like, your episodes with James Smith are unbelievable. And I was like, uh, uh, it was funny because remember our last episode, the audio was a bit off. We were talking about that and I was like, yeah, but the audio in the last one wasn't good. So I was like waiting for the next one to get it right. But uh, our feedback's been going great. So that's very much appreciated from the listeners. Um, so long-term life development. Uh, yeah, take it away. Your thoughts. Uh, w- what are your current thoughts around it? And again, the reason I brought this up, as I said to you before we hopped online here, was it's kind of been on my radar uh, between my masters, the Altus um, Foundation course, and just conversations with James Fitzgerald on sort of maximum physical potential and, and long-term life development. It's, it's kind of been something that's been on my mind, and I really want you to talk about it. So take it away. So answering this question, it's important for me to to clarify reference frame. And, and, as, and as you know, something that you've brought up and that we've made sure to clarify the significance of with respect to establishing for context is the reference frame in which someone adopts in order to, to answer any question. And what I am finding myself, understandably so, having to clarify routinely is the reference frame that I'm operating from because as anyone who is aware that that's followed my career, what I used to do is significantly different than what I've been doing professionally. Truthfully, the last six years Mm. and 
if, if anyone is familiar with the governing dynamics of coaching, the modes of consulting that I've done across this, this spectrum of the governing dynamics, that is my reference frame. And so in answering the question, what are my thoughts on long-term athletic development, the reference frame from which I respond is through the one in which I have these strenuous criticisms against the existing notions of coaching education, the factionalization of specialties that should be unified into generalist competencies, et cetera. And so what this brings us to, Robbie, is in answering the question on long-term athletic development, you'll, you'll recall the grammar analogy mm. that, I, that I utilize. And it, it brings to mind the, the failure of what is so obvious in my judgment that, that fails to be recognized with respect to how to establish competency in ensuring not only long-term athletic development, but possibly an even more important notion, which is establishing competency at the level of initiation. Because as we know, the, the range of plasticity of the various biological systems that are in states of acceleration due to this pre-adolescent stage mandates in an objective reference frame greater competency at that level than any other. The irony, of course, is that in any capitalist democratic system, it's a financial disadvantage. And so there is a lack of a draw for individuals to find employment at the earliest possible stages because there's no money. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of our first problems that, that has to be accounted for. And I'll circle back to the grammar analogy. So we've got these levels of only genotype and, and whatever phenotypic influence has been allowed for in these few years time prior to a young person being say a candidate for some formalized approach. And of course, even, even that line of dialogue has to be specified because we know that certain athletic activities in sports are more conducive to be introduced earlier and earlier. For example, you know, youth gymnastics and swimming. I mean, swimming, it can be introduced before a, a child can even ambulate and walk on terra firma and youth gymnastics is quite appropriate to introduce as soon as a child can walk. Mm. And, and we move from there in terms of the reasons why these activities are so beneficial to introduce at early stages to build upon whatever multivariate set of genotype traits that contribute to neural coordinative movements and spatial orientation dynamics. Going from what is inherited genetically, we, we want to ideally optimize the influence of phenotype. So what this points towards is essentially a counter argument to the notion of how to establish long-term athletic developmental models because inherently they're standardized. All these different modes of athletic developmental models are standardized. And for that reason, in my judgment, from the governing dynamics objective reference frame, they're failing before they're starting. Mm. 
the reason why there's no argument against why individualized customized modes of education are superior there's it's completely uncontroversial and with this grammar analogy it, it's it's a no-brainer to resolve the issue of a young child in whom a speech developmental pathology is recognized. It's a no-brainer to understand that the solution for this child in whom a speech pathology is identified early on, say in at, at three years old, between three and four years old, it, it's an utter no-brainer to recognize that the most inappropriate solution is to simply expose that child to as many different forms of dialogue and social interaction as you can so they can sort of work their way out of the pathology. That is exactly what we do not do. What we do is we specifically address the problem with the appropriate types of therapy prior to the immersion in those social dynamics and as a result of that demand would only serve to worsen and galvanize the pathology. Ironically, however, we have a completely different concept, a, an unusually false sense of logic that operates in the sport domain, which is to say, expose all these very young people to the broadest possible set of sport exposures so as to broaden the motor skill apparatus despite whatever anomalies might exist along the way mechanically. So it's tantamount to one stating, ah, eh, it's a speech pathology. They just need to talk their way out of it. Just encourage the kid to, to play more and just keep going to school and, 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 you know, it'll sort itself out. This is what, this is why I criticize the notion of a broad exposure to sports at a young age. Because just like grammar, the reason why grammar is taught so early in any school anywhere in the world is due to the fundamental role that grammar plays in communication, forming sentence structures that are intelligible. So what is our analogy to be made in the sport context, well, the grammar of sport is motion, but it's not only motion. It, it of course, is the sensory motor underpinnings, the psychomotor relationships. This is our grammar for sport. And this grammar for sport, in my judgment, is what must initiate the process of long-term sports success uh, is how I'll refer to it because long-term athletic development by definition doesn't tell me anything with respect to whether someone is going to be competitive in a particular sport mm -hmm. be because we can look at any number of sports as utterly incompetently structured as they are, these combines that have nothing to do with the sports in which these athletes are being evaluated in, in any number of sports around the world. And we can look at all kinds of athletes that can run, jump, change direction, look the part, yet they're incompetent at the sports they're attempting to qualify for. Yeah. And, and therefore they test well and may as well be a product of long-term athletic development because they have these basic attributes that some people associate with athleticism, but, but, but would actually have very little to do with athleticism because as anyone knows who's read the governing dynamics, athleticism much more than anything else is a function of coordination and fluidity and 
Kurt Meinl's motor, motor quality reference frame is, is one of the more helpful ones that I've seen in this regard to, to describe these amplitudes, these frequencies, these precisions of the, the rhythm and coupling of these actions. This is what athleticism is. It's the fluidity which which an athlete in whatever sport they play is demonstrating these high levels of coordinated sport movements and demonstrating the appearance that this is effortless for them. That's athletic. And athletic, of course, gets conflated with athlete. And as, as we know, there's all sorts of athletes, even professional athletes in some sports, that are, by every objective, quantifiable measure, remarkably unathletic, yet due to other compensating variables, have, have managed to compete their way so we go back to this grammar analogy. How, how then best objectively do we initiate the process of this, be, this beginning of what will end up being high achievements in competitive sport? If we say the, the aim of this is so that when these athletes are in their teenage years or early 20s are qualifying for national and international level sport. Mm -hmm. This this would be my this is this is my rep, reference frame. This is what we're working backwards from. Okay. Not who can jump and do agility drills and lift weights and all these things and be exceptional in life cuz that that actually has in some cases absolutely nothing to do with being a national or international level competitor in certain sports, rather working backwards from sport itself across the spectrum, identifying along the way based upon the implicit talents and the interests of the athletes as they mature, steering them in the right directions where they have the highest predispositions for success. But the real key is how this all begins and how it must begin, in my judgment, is through an extraordinarily individualized approach that mandates extraordinary levels of competency at these early stages. And what that means specifically is a level of interdisciplinary knowledge, which is to say competency, at these very early ages to recognize every possible relevant factor that it is intrinsic and relevant to this course that is being set up that is ultimately a derivative process of working backwards from national and international level sport. So these interdisciplinary domains are represented by the governing dynamics. What type of knowledge this individual has to recognize psychobehavioral variations, neurocognitive variations, and we go on down the list in assembling individualized approaches to introducing and supervising the instruction of the tasks that have been decided upon, again, working in this derivative fashion. So what, what the, the broad landscape consists of at this point is the, the reference of introducing at, with language that is commensurate, which, which you know, I, I explain how these substrates of the governing dynamics exist as, as we go through the, what in my view is all, uh, incontrovertible instruction, meaning if you, if you lack the knowledge to understand the implications of your word selection, your tone of voice, the volume in which you're speaking, and how that is potentially implicated in the behavioral, psychological interpretation of the individuals who you are interacting with, you're incompetent. And, and so what I then just did was offer a, a fairly brief proof of just how incompetent most coaches are in general. Because as a professional consultant, I, I mean, just last night I was 
consulting with one of my clients who is a professional athlete who was explaining to me just how difficult it is for him to operate given the fact that a coach who works with him is constantly yelling and screaming. And because this particular athlete grew up in a challenged household in which he was subject to, to different types of similar inappropriate behavior, is it's a real problem for him. And so this, this is completely pandemic in sport, and it's only one example of the incompetencies that exist in sport coaching. This one having to do with this failure to what in the psychological jargon is termed mentalize. Mm-hmm. Mental, mentalize is a sort of second tier component of self-regulation, which is the jargon used to describe one's awareness of how their words and actions are interpreted by those in whom they interact with socially. A component of this is empathy, but more broadly, mentalizing is the jargon used to describe this level of awareness, because this is what we're speaking about here, Robbie, simply the awareness of how your words and your actions are implicated. So it's just one of the many competencies of the governing dynamics that are currently not required by any formalized standard, ironically, at any level, regardless of whether it's this early youth stage or the professional or international. So we go down the list, and, and the concept of the governing dynamics is what I've now done is I've assembled a round table, and for example, I'm leading the meeting, and around the table, I have experts assembled from every realm of the, the governed dynamics and the relevant subsidiaries. And I, I set up the governing dynamics in such a way, so whereas we can start with one of the primary governing dynamics, such as psychology, and, and by aggregating psychology and, and say sensory motor, which is also another governing dynamic, we can find our way towards a neurocognitive specialty a speech pathologist. We, we can go as narrow as we like due to the way that I've set up the governing dynamics. And so what I have is this large table set up with every relevant expert in the field in order to shoot holes and contribute ideas when we go reference by reference, what are the markers? What are the indicators? What are the most valuable constructs to set up at given stages of development relative to every possible contributing domain that is linked to this derivative approach to preparing for national or international level sport in another decade and a half? And this is the way that we mitigate the possibility of arriving at solutions that are as dysfunctional as those that are currently suggested and even more those that have currently and long since existed. As you know, Robbie, whether it's what has long since existed more parochially or even what is suggested through these LTAD models, they are still much more on the end of the continuum that, that is still existing as some sort of, you know, natural selection in the context of sport, athletic neo-Darwinism. And we can do much better than that with knowledge. And it's the reason why, even in the case of the understanding of evolution, that despite the, the brilliant effort of Darwin and others, this notion had to be advanced upon to explain the objective truth of evolution, hence the neo-Darwinist approach, modernized variation and selection. In the context of this optimized approach that I would advocate for, we have to as the governing dynamics suggests, establish a set of universal 
knowledge. So we have this round table of experts in every conceivable field that could possibly relate to the, the human behavior and the development of neurocognitive qualities and the neuroanatomical understandings in terms of the, the adaptive processes of stimuli across a, an enormous bandwidth of, of psychological, social, physical, et cetera, stimuli. And the, the level of individualization must be tantamount to the variability that these competent individuals are presented with. Ironically, Robbie, what we have is something tantamount to the exact opposite of this, the, the exact opposite, which is to say this generalized approach, encourage these kids to participate in a bunch of different sports growing up and between some combination of where their, their talents emerge. And ironically, though, it's more has to do towards usually social interests they're participating in the sports because their friends are, not necessarily because that's where their greatest possibilities for excess, success exist. And, and it is not until these, these athletes are in their mature years, but biologically speaking, that then even the, the economy and therefore the infrastructure is set up to, to offer more individual types of preparation, whether that be in the skill specialty or in the general athletic specialty. And this is tantamount, according to this frame of reference that I'm using, as being just utterly backwards, utterly backwards, because the, the more these types of resources in neuropsychology and technical skill and general athletic development are subsumed by single individuals into the competent general knowledge and applied at the beginning stages, then what we are doing is developing extraordinary competency in sport and related skills in these young people that allows for greater and greater self-directed learning in life, which, which we're seeing is just the optimal approach in, for example, academic circles. It's, I, I look at the model, you know, the, the conclave that I have set up on my website, which has been influenced by the director of the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, Physics, Neil Turok, as well as David Deutsch, and and something that Neil Turok has pointed out with the, the extraordinary contributions he's made in this domain that I'm speaking of, of individualized education is with the African Institute of Mathematical Sciences. There's now more than a dozen of them plotted across the continent of Africa, and none of these institutions operate on the basis of tests or grades, not one of them. It's deep learning, deep problem solving, and how that occurs is through these competent instructors who are often visiting physicists and mathematicians and engineers who through dialogue and learning from these students, encourage the students to find their own mode of problem solving and learning. And what's the result? The amount of intellectual output that come out, so these are postgraduate programs, AIMS, African Institute of Mathematical Science, gotta be an African national, Get you have to be a college graduate, and there are primarily scholarship offered, so they have this extraordinary reach into the rural communities. And the percentage of students who graduate from these AIMS programs that go on to masters and PhDs is something on the order of 98%. So it's, it is just incontrovertibly controvertibly extraordinarily effective. And the premise on which they operate 
refutes this common notion of education, which I'm extending broadly to include coaching. So it's, it, it's all education. And the failure to have the knowledge at the appropriate levels, which in the context of our conversation is the earliest levels that allows for this broad interdisciplinary bandwidth of knowledge to be applied so as to individualize the process and encourage these young people at the very beginning to find their own most appropriate paths to advancing in every governing dynamic of coaching and all the related substrates as they apply to this model of long-term sports competitive development. What, t tell me how you're re reacting to this so far, Robbie. Uh, just my the, just the kind of thought in my mind is like, how would this look though with a kid? So, uh, like you know, like a very young child in terms of individualizing it, because obviously a uh, a big aspect of of the sports preparation at a young age is the social aspect and being around your mates and all that. The other question there I had was, um, like how, like how early can we tell what someone's proclivity will be in terms of a sport that they'll excel at? So like, is that like, that is sort of the, the, the rationale that, that is given on traditional long-term athletic development, you know, to, to give the athlete a broad exposure so that then they can kind of, deduce from that broad exposure you know what they can specialize or should specialize in um so yeah they'd be my two immediate thoughts in that like like how how early can we tell that yeah we think that this is a sport that this young kid could individualize that and then secondly what would it what would it look like you know because i just in my mind and again you'll obviously answer this now but like you know it's the 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 emotional and cognitive development of a child to maintain maybe concentration it's it's suppose what age are we talking about here when we're starting obviously it's from the, the day the baby's born we obviously wanted to be exposed to an environment that it can acquire the needed the needed motions and movements and um, that it's going to need as a platform for sport but it's uh yeah it's definitely you're definitely trying to monkey in the wrench there saying that you know it's backwards in terms of this broad development and then it's a specialization i i, I appreciate what you're saying in terms of individualizing it um, but there obviously is a, a generality in that like there is all fundamental human movements that we all need to have in place and then off that we kind of have our own you know as Sean Miss could say our own sort of movement solutions within that but they're, they're the two that I kind of have on my mind in that how early can we tell what an athlete's proclivity would be um, and then two what, what, what does this actually look like then once you have sort of your panel of experts like okay now there's a kid there like what, what, would it, what, what does this process look like from the beginning it is an existing fallacy with respect to when to introduce different doses of intervention no matter what that consists of is to categorize according to chronological age this is what we do in schools we know what what's the appropriate curriculum for primary school this stage, this stage, this stage, this stage, elementary school, this grade, this grade, this grade, this grade. It's been standardized according to chronological age. And the, the reality, Robbie, is that in, without exception, as soon as you standardize, you begin to cater to mediocrity. It is inevitable. You are... Uh, you are accounting for and treating the mean. So the ultra high performers progress is retarded and those with developmental disabilities are over their head. It is, it is inevitable in any type of generalized approach, be it academic or physical, it, there, there's no exception to this. So the answer to your question, how, how do you know and when do you know and how early might you recognize predispositions for particular sports? The question, is, and this, this brings to mind something that the late Charlie Francis was wise to, the answer is you know when you know. That's so when... 
so, that's when you know. So let me. Uh, I'll. Yeah. I, I know. I, I know what you're looking for here, and so you know what you know means. If this level of competency, competency at the level of teacher, I'm just going to refer to this as teaching and education, hmm. exists along the way, then these indicators, when they make themselves available through both the social and the analytical observations, as well as the type of quantitative measurements that we know are, we can, we can put to work in terms of those that tell us about not only the more parochial understandings of how the body is moving and what types of energy losses or conservations are occurring as a result of technical motion, but how brain functions and neurocognitive functions, and there's, there's just so much that is quantifiable and testable. And so we are measuring as much as we can from the very beginning. And this includes the most non-invasive ways of identifying muscle composition. And so at a very early age, we can tell a great deal about what is likely to result and begin this general process of getting an idea and steering athletes. For example, one of the most basic ones is what I just mentioned, muscle fiber composition. At a relatively long, young age, the transitional fibers have mutated, particularly according to what the, the, young, the young person has been exposed to physically. And you have a very keen notion of the proportion of muscle fiber constitution. So it's a no-brainer to recognize, again, at whatever age that is, because biological maturation does not occur utterly uniformly even among same sex of the species. Mm -hmm. We understand that it's completely uncontroversial to suggest this, this young woman with 85% red muscle fiber is not one that we are going to steer towards the explosive alactic endeavors in track and field or team sports. That That's completely illogical and vice versa for the ones who have this extraordinary proportion of white fiber. And beyond, much beyond that, because that is just a, a surface entry level consideration, we have all the morphobiomechanical studies that came out of Russia to have this much, much more broadly defined set of not only anthropometric, but also the biomechanical factors that affect motion and then coupling those again across these broad set of the governing dynamic substrates, including psychobehavioral and neurocognitive and sensory motor. And so to your, to your first question, how can we know? We know when we know when it happens because we have this lineage of teachers involved through the, you know, through the ages, the age groups that will recognize and through their testing when these attributes make themselves recognizable. And then that is then coupled with the mode of only this is the second part of your question only introducing the 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 general instruction of tasks in such a way in which the monitoring of the tasks will not allow for what I'll just call pathologies to go unnoticed so as as you as I agree with you Robbie, you mentioned that there's certain general qualities that are relevant for a large number of athletes. For example, and the the fallacy of the existing models of you know a broad exposure to, to sports is that the exposure alone is not enough. And it's, it's not an appropriate mode of teaching the motions. Again, I'll go back to the speech pathology. What we do not do with the child who has demonstrated a speech pathology is encourage them to speak more. What we do that is appropriate is 
We take audio recordings so that the own child can hear the sounds that they're making and begin to adapt the neurocognitive and neuro speech pathological remedies by their own problem solving mechanisms and giving them the own speech pattern linguistic exercises to begin to resolve what is pathological with respect to the embouchure of their mouth and how they're moving their, their tongue against the roof to make certain sounds, et cetera. They're, the point is they're getting acute interventions to resolve the, the anomalies, which is precisely what any young sports person must be privy to. And the way that they are not privy to this is by simply having these, you know, weekend certification courses for football or gymnastics or whatever these, these young, you know, lacrosse and netball, depending where you are in the world. And instead of having these certification processes that are just remarkably inadequate that, that allow for the existing youth coaches who on the broad scale are utterly oblivious to the types of subtle and nuanced characteristics that I'm making an argument for here being utterly paramount. This is the reason why you have an extraordinary amount of problems to deal with at the, at the middle and later ages because they were never noticed and resolved early enough. And so the, the way that it works, Robbie, is something tantamount to the specialty schools that we see in academia already existing. And you and I discussed some of these a number of podcasts ago. You have the Montessori programs and others. The, the point is you've, you've got in academia all the way up to the university level, you've sort of got on the one hand, the general population versions in which you've got large class sizes and a very poor teacher to student ratio. And this, this starts from the very early ages all the way up to, to the university level. And then you've got the private institutions that offer a much higher degree of individualized instruction where there's, a, there's, a, there's much more suitable ratios that exist between teachers and students. And utterly, without exception, there's no argument against the, the superior mode of education being the one that is individualized. There's, there's just no leg to stand on to argue against that. And we see this across every platform that it applies, Robbie, because if we want to talk about tactical and tactical military skills, I can go to any country in the world that has a tier one special operations unit, which is the result of highly individualized training and show you a superior version of a soldier than in the general infantry. And I can go to any country in the world and show you the, again, this is across broad scales. I can show you the populations of students that are products of these highly individualized approaches to academic instruction and how they're achieving relative to the, you know, the same number of students with their more generalized or rather general population, enormous class sizes and how, and how they are functioning in the world. And then we can go to the sports context and isolate those athletes who, for whatever set of reasons, have had access. Usually it's in the individual sports. I'm thinking of tennis in gymnastics in which many of the world's highest performers have had these individual coaches since they were children. We see this a lot in tennis and gymnastics and, and that speaks for itself. So the, the, the alternative to this is invariably athletic Darwinism. Yes, of course we have 
high-performing geniuses emerge out of the general populations of education in which these students are, are namely products of class sizes in the hundreds to one in structure. And, and yes, we have exceptional athletes and movers who are products of these you know, inner cities and didn't have any type of specialized knowledge being applied towards their development in a technical or otherwise manner. And, and yes, you can find soldiers in the general infantry that have a level of acumen, which, which arguably would, you know, make the argument, well, then why didn't you pursue special operations? If you have this level, we, we can find these exceptions in any domain. But the point is where are we seeing the most consistent demonstration of the competency that I'm referring to, and the answer is unarguably, uncontroversially, in these domains in which this individualized, specialized level of instruction is ubiquitous. That's where we find them. And so it's simply extrapolating from this logic to integrate it at the earliest possible stages. So I, I could, using the, the an examples and the analogies that I just gave, Robbie, we, we could perhaps say, well, look, to get off to the proper start here, just to take a look at the, the, the mode of instruction in, let's say, military special operations or the mode of instruction in these specialized academic institutions that have a much more advantageous ratio from teacher to student, or have a look at what the coaches of, you know, Djokovic and Sharapova, and we, and we go through the gymnasts, have a look at what, what these athletes or these military personnel or these academics have a look at how they were or are instructed and what this consisted of and, and what this individualized process looked like and what the aggregate looks like they're exposed to. And now extrapolate that out to this is what everyone should have access to. Now, now of course, then we get into the question, okay, well, how are we going to pay for that? How are we going to have the money to educate, to have this level of competency at these early ages? and the infrastructure, and those are all soluble problems as well. As physicist David Deutsch has repeated upon, all problems are soluble given the proper knowledge. In terms of the dialogue to what does this look like from this governing dynamics objective reference frame, Robbie, I, I challenge anyone to offer a counter argument simply on the grounds of what is the most optimal. I, I, I used a geometric shape a number of years ago speaking towards this in one of the lectures of mine on Global Sport Concepts, Robbie, in which the, the current sort of model of this long-term athletic de development is, is it's somewhat pyramidal in which you have the broad base that's narrowing towards the top and and the reason why I criticize this strenuously is because what we discussed you, you you don't just talk your way through a speech pathology it needs to reshape itself more towards a a diamond or even a rugby ball or an American football in which you have a tapering at either end so the the beginning is tapered because we're concentrated on specific skills and motions. And by skills, I'm extending that broadly to the psychomotor, sensory motor, neurocognitive, mm -hmm. as well as dynamic motion qualities, establishing competencies. So this is the analogy to establishing grammar, establishing the, the trivium before the quadrivium. So, so we've got the fundamental competencies developed through this more tapered, concentrated end. And as those competencies develop across 
the psychomotor, sensory, motor, neural, cognitive, linguistic, psychobehavioral, all, all the gamut down through the motion dynamics. Now we can begin to expand out because now your objective candidacy to participate in a broader range of sports only after which these competencies have been developed is that much more robust. It, that's another utterly incontrovertible posit, Robbie. N no one can challenge me on that and make sense of themselves by doing so. And after, again, how much time does this occur for? The answer is the, the competent person at that time knows. They'll know when they know, and now that shape begins to taper down as these adult years are now approaching, and, and now you have found your way into the sport in which you are going to be a national and international level competitor. So scrap the pyramid and replace it with whatever, the rugby ball, the American football, the diamond, where you start concentrated and individualized, develop your competencies across all governing dynamics. The bandwidth now opens a handful of years later, and you can try your hand at a variety of different disciplines. And that then tapers so as to allow for the achievements of high results in a single sport at the time in which you can be competitive at the national or international level. You just summed up the whole podcast there in the last like two or three minutes. That's all he had to say was the, the diamond. Once, once he said the diamond, I was like, oh, now I finally get this whole conversation. Yeah, because I, I thought like you were saying you were completely against like uh, an exposure to to like many different sports but what you're saying is you need to in, have an individualized period before you allow someone to the exposure to these individualized sports you got to make sure that they have like basically technical models of proficient human movement down and then we will we'll allow them to go into these broad domains and then out of that broad domains then we can you know we'll see well, their pro, their probability or predisposition to where we think they could specialize that's right but not only the movement robbie and, and this is where i criticize probably everybody else you've, you've spoken to on this topic is because the, the, yes, that's a big part of it, mm -hmm. but what's arguably an even bigger part of it is the, the psychobehavioral realm. Yeah, of course. So, so it's, it's the, it's the whole set of the governing dynamics. Yeah. And, and yes, if you, if you think of it in terms of that shape, that is what, that is what should exist under, under any objective reference frame that is, a, that is a product of every possible type of subject matter knowledge that could influence this type of discussion, which, of course, I've aggregated as the governing dynamics. Mm. And so, so that is the answer you get from my reference frame. Yeah. And just so you know, too, I, I'm well aware that, you know, going by chronological age is extremely, extremely flawed. <laughs> Yeah, because everybody, uh, obviously, from a, uh, a biological standpoint, develops at completely different rates. Now, of course, there's like very, very vague sort of age brackets, but it's very vague. And again, the, it's very individualized in terms of development, which are biology. But uh, no, that, once again, once you said the diamond shape there, I was like, oh, that, like, a light bulb that. I was like, now I finally, because I, I was under the impression, that's why I asked, how would you know? what sports one had a predisposition to if there was an exposure to like sure. you know a, a broad exposure to different sports or you know as i said different sort of fitness domains and and i thought you were you were initially saying you were against this but again correct me if i'm wrong you're saying that there just needs to be a prerequisite before you allow someone to that exposure and the prerequisite is again this development of not only movements you say but like psychosocial development and just basically all development that makes up a human organism precisely Okay, well, I got that. I think the listeners got it too. So, uh, <laughs> listen, uh, we're rocking on an hour here. Um, if there's anything else you want to add, uh, any upcoming events, speaking in engagements, what are you, uh, are you still just, I was going to say, what are you reading and studying right now? Just use your maths and physics. Yeah, that's always the cornerstone. As, as I mentioned offline, uh, my, my work in psychological consulting is extending probably faster than the other realms mm. in terms of the, you know, it's the, it's the interdisciplinary knowledge that I'll always come back to Robbie and in those, 
who are determined to to educate themselves in this way will find that the most conducive way to do so is is to have the time available and so and so because this is all that i do i don't have a day job and so this is what allows for me to sort of you know the 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 this this simple explanation is be this sort of one-stop shop in that the, the the reason why I'm constant on the blog on my website. I just posted the most recent example of one of the 2018 Fields Medal winners, which is the most prestigious award giving in mathematics. It's tantamount to a Nobel Prize in mathematics. Mm. Coucher Bakar was one of the 2018 Fields Medal winners, and I and I wrote a blog starting with a quote of his, in which he is espousing towards this more broad interdisciplinary set of, in his case, mathematical knowledge the la- that gives him this perspective and the analogy he uses. It's the difference between walking through the city streets versus flying above the city streets and seeing all the structures from the bird's eye view. And this is what the governing dynamics allows for. And, and you, can, you can assemble a set of governing dynamics for any professional discipline. It's just in sports, I have offered my own advocacy for what this looks like and the reason why as a psychological consultant i'm able to have the effect with these both staff members and executives and athletes all all the special operations personnel who i work with is because i'm not coming from an isolated reference frame in which in which if I was, all I could offer is my assimilation of the research in that specific domain. But because no matter if I'm working with an executive or working with a military special operator or a professional athlete, because I have a competency in all of the related governing dynamics, I'm able to synthesize those into the dialogues. And so this is what you know, you're nodding your head. Of course, it clearly this has a deeper impact because of the way you connect the dots that typically remain unconnected when you're dealing with simply a specialist because yeah. a specialist just doesn't know what they're talking about mm-hmm. when they attempt, if they were to attempt to link an adjacent reference frame. And, and as soon as you attempt, as soon as you educate yourself so as to be able to do that, you're invariably improving upon your general knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's be that's a big part of it. There is, you know, there's there's more in-depth work going on with one of the professional teams in which I'm on retainer for, and I'm making that many more connections with other head coaches in professional sports. So everything's everything's looking good. Just before we finish up there, I think the key word you used, Aaron, and I just want to sort of um allude to this point because i think it's an important point for for the listeners to be aware of is that you use the word competent you know to to be comp to have enough competency in these other areas of of uh of knowledge or these other areas of domain of domains of knowledge and that's yes. the key word is because i think a lot of people go oh but you can't be an expert and everything and like, that's not what we're taught we said you want to be just competent and yes. it, it reminds me then of um fergus Connolly's four um is it four coactive model he calls it it's essentially from the russians like the russians also have the four big things you know physical psychological technical tactical and the key thing is that you didn't have to be perfect at all four of those areas in terms of like each one of those buckets had to be 100 percent optimal to be to be like a master at your craft you needed enough competency in each one of the four now usually what happens is an athlete is like unbelievable in one or two or maybe even three of those areas, but they always had one or two or three areas where they were just competent enough. So the, I like the analogy Fergus gives in terms of sport is like, look at Tom Brady. He's like uh, physical, the physical bucket. He's like, he's competent. He's not like the, the greatest athlete of all time, but he's competent and he's enough competency in that then to allow him to display his like amazing tactical abilities, his technical and tactical abilities. And he obviously has enough psychological competency as well to help with that. Whereas you get other athletes then, you know, so a lot of the, you say you might have wide receivers who athletically, physically are unbelievable. Psychologically could be okay, just about competent, maybe not, you know, maybe, not, maybe just on the borderline. Um, and then technically, tactically, they have just enough to get by as well, but it's just their physical capabilities that compensates for the other the other sort of um, 
deficiencies. But yeah, it, it, that, that's just the key. When you just said competency, I think that's just a key point that the listeners need to be aware of is that James is saying like you have to be an absolute expert in every single domain area. You just want to be competent enough that you can connect the dots. Well, and, and that level of I've offered a, a posit for what that competency is defined by mm-hmm. in mind is the criteria in the, in the governing dynamics because, you know, most academic institutions would argue that they have established a level of competency with respect to the curricula and the tests, and we can, we can demolish that with, with a host of criticisms to show that, okay, your notion of competency is utterly flawed, and here's why. Yeah. And, and, and the same would be true in sport. And so one way for listeners to consider this, Robbie, would be to take each domain of the governing dynamics and if you want to get an idea on what my argument for competency is, ask yourself if you're ready to give a lecture in each one of the governing dynamics to an audience of experts, global experts in that field. Very good. So whether it's leadership, whether it's psychology, whether it's evolutionary biology, whether it's biomechanics, whether it's physiology, whether it's neurocoordinative aspects, ask yourself, can you give a lecture to an audience of only PhDs in those disciplines and not make a fool of yourself? If, if you can have head not, heads nodding across these PhDs, which is to say, the PhD might recognize, okay, you haven't assimilated the same breadth of research in that specific field as he or she has, but the reason why they'll not is because they'll say, look, everything that he or she just lectured on is utterly consistent mm-hmm. with what the consensus agreement is in this field. Mm. So, you know, cre- credit to that person that would be competency. Mm. And, so, and so this is what I would challenge any, any coach who thinks that they're competent to, to have a look at the governing dynamics and ask if you're ready to give a lecture in each one of them to a group of PhDs. Very good. And, and what about experience? I thought experience was very... <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Joking, joking. Uh, Indeed. Yeah, isn't, that's brilliant. Um, just uh, plug yourself there, plug the website. And uh, you, li- you literally, uh, the last video you put up there was um, your work with Larry Fitzgerald, which uh, has just gone up on the Conclave. So just for the, the listeners, if that's something you'd be interested in, go over and check that out. Make sure I get this right. Global Sport Concepts. That's right. I said and, I said sports last day, and I got a spanking for that. And then, and the the one thing I did not mention that I'll that I'll give a I'll give a a public public mention of is that Raymond Verheyen of the World Football Academy and I have developed over these last few years a very good working relationship. Of course, most recently he had me over to Valencia, Spain, to participate in his pro course. Raymond and I, Robbie, are co-authoring the governing dynamics of football. Ah, very good. This this will be the first specific sport application of the governing dynamics, and so Raymond and I have we've I've already begun writing it, and the so stay tuned, all football fans, for the governing dynamics of football. There's another hundred euro I have to save up now. Uh, I know that will be a rugby one soon because I know there's a few rugby coaches who have the governing dynamics on on their bookshelves yeah absolutely we'll we'll get a governing dynamic of fill in the blanks Gaelic games you you presented on Gaelic games before I've had you over 2012 James presented in Ireland on hurling and football and he was very he was very competent all the coaches were nodding their heads (laughs) Uh, listen James that's fantastic Um, as I said I think the analogy at the end of the diamond for me personally is where the light bulb went off and it brought the whole show together so as always I really appreciate you um, willing to um, like accept the topic that I want to talk about because I wanted to actually discuss long-term development and you were like absolutely I'll discuss that for you so I really appreciate that and for everyone listening be sure to check out uh, jamesglobalsportconcepts.net it is .net that's right doubly sure and that'll be all linked up in the show notes as always but for now myself Robbie Burke and from James Smith take care be well and stay strong mm-hmm.